This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Collider says BritBox has TV everyone should be watching. Stream acclaimed series with powerful performances from Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, Bella Ramsey, and Matthew McFadden. Discover new BritBox original series you won't find anywhere else. Like Three Little Birds, Agatha Christie's Murder is Easy, and a new chapter of BAFTA-winning drama, Time. Stream what the New York Times calls the best of British telly, only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, and with me as always is a man that gets paid by the garage weekly, very weekly. He is the captain. You know crime don't pay. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening, and thanks for telling a friend. This week we are drinking Anytime Minutes by the Willows Family Ales, garage grade three and three quarter bottle caps out of five. There is no need to wait for a certain time of day to enjoy a great beer, especially when that beer is Anytime Minutes double IPA. I like to start at 6 a.m. This is a juicy beer with razor sharp hops, and this week's beer was brought to us by these sharp individuals first up. We have Drew Morton in Los Angeles. And a big shout out to Anthony in Ringgold, Georgia. Next up, a shout out to Sean in Lowborough. He says he is the original captain. Original doesn't mean the best. And a big we like a jib to Sandra in Pickerington, Ohio. Go Tigers. And a big, big thank you to Kim in Houston, Texas. And last but certainly not least, we have Pamela in Griswold, Iowa. So thanks to all of you for going to truecrimegarage.com and clicking on that donate button. If you want to help us out with next week's beer run, you do the same thing. B double E double R U N beer run, and that's enough of the beers, Nia. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Let's take a few minutes to talk about these poor little girls. Denise Milner was 10 years old and the only African-American girl at Camp Scott. She originally was excited to go to camp and sold a lot of cookies to help raise money, but became nervous just before leaving. A counselor that rode the bus to camp with her said that she was very quiet and her mother asked if Denise could be allowed to call home the next day since she was very hesitant to go. Once she got to Camp Scott, 
We know Denise was homesick. Denise's father was a Tulsa police officer. Denise was involved in a lot of activities, including tap dancing, singing, and gymnastics. Betty Milner, her mother, related what happened to her when she found out when her daughter was dead, saying, they told me Denise is dead. She and two other girls. I asked if it was an accident, adding, I could accept an accident. Then they told me she had been beaten to death. Betty was the one that urged her daughter to go to camp. That's probably something that weighs on her pretty heavily. Lori Farmer was very mature for her age. The blonde-haired, brown-eyed little girl skipped a grade because she was so advanced. Lori was just eight years old, but her birthday was in June. And her parents, Bo and Sherry, planned to visit their daughter at camp on her special day. Sherry Farmer said her husband, Bo, arrived back from his overnight shift at a hospital. Said he looked awful, ghost white. Then she noticed he wasn't alone. With him was his colleague, Dr. Anderson. Anderson spoke first. He said, Sherry, you need to sit down. And I said, no, I'm not going to sit. He said, Lori is dead. Where do you put that in your brain? There is no place to put that, she said. Sherry has been haunted by her daughter's final moments in the presence of one or more killers. Lori's letter home written that night reads, quote, I've met two new friends. I'm sharing a tent with them. We're sleeping on cots. I couldn't wait to write. Love, Lori. Since her daughter's death, Sherry Farmer has taken up the cause of victims' rights. Over the past four decades, she has met, spoken to, and counseled thousands of people in classes seminars, and one-on-one. Together with her husband, Farmer also started a Parents of Murdered Children's chapter in Oklahoma. Farmer said, quote, if you have something bad happen, ask yourself, how can this help anybody else? Yeah, they constantly say, when you feel bad about your situation, then give service to others. And through that, you'll feel positivity. Michelle Gousset was nine years old when she left for Camp Scott, which she attended and loved the previous summer. She was also into soccer. She left explicit instructions to her parents to water her plants while she was gone. Her parents said that they were told that their daughter had been killed, but they learned of actual circumstances of her death from the TV news. After Michelle's death, her father threw himself into victims' rights efforts in Oklahoma becoming a leading voice and volunteer of the Crime Victim and Witness Bill of Rights, a package of laws adopted by state legislature. From there, Gousset was appointed by the governor to the Crime Victims Compensation Board, which was created in that effort. He said, quote, this is my commitment to our situation. Gousset said in 1994, after 13 years of never missing a board meeting, stated, Because of my daughter, maybe the world will be a little better place to be. Hopefully some good is coming out of this. On June 23rd, 1977, 10 days after the murders, Mays County District Attorney Sid Wise called a news conference. A suspect, he said, was being charged with the murders. This is 33-year-old Gene Leroy Hart, a Locust Grove native and Cherokee Indian. Hart was already familiar to authorities. Mm -hmm. A convicted rapist and burglar, he was a two-time prison escapee and was on the run for four years since his second escape from the Mays County Jail in 1973. Well, it doesn't seem like he was so much on the run, but when he got out, he was kind of protected 
by the reservations. Well, his his previous convictions, uh, they the sentences for which totaled more than three hundred plus years. Yeah, he was now facing three first degree murder charges. Wise announced. Wise said that items found in a cave close to Camp Scott were connected to Hart, who was believed to be hiding in the area. Well, yeah, Hart's mother lived roughly a, a mile from the campground, but there was also a cave that they believed that Hart was staying in. Yeah, Wise added that the Hart had the advantage in eluding law enforcement and that he was an expert woodsman and had many family members living in the area. Mm-hmm. And so the manhunt that would go down as the largest in state history began. The hunt for Hart, fanning out for miles through tick and snake infested hill country, and involved a 600-person army of searchers in dogs and aircraft. Well, all they had to do is start sniffing to see if they could smell that piece of shit. A physical description of Gene Hart began to appear daily in media reports. He's 5 foot 10 inches tall, weighs about 220 pounds, black hair, brown eyes. It smells like Duke. In the days after the Hart was a suspect announcement, The atmosphere was emotionally charged with hundreds of volunteers getting into fights and showing up armed and or drunk. Mm -hmm. American Indian movement, the AIM officials came in to make sure people didn't start just quote shooting Indians. Mm -hmm. The Oklahoma highway patrol special weapons and tactics team got involved. And by June 29th, 40 FBI agents had arrived. Despite Hart being a convicted double rapist, many in Mays County doubted Hart's guilt. He was seen by many as a scapegoat for the white establishment, a, quote, handy suspect. Yeah, well, this is bullshit anyways, because he escaped from prison. He raped and tortured women before. Then his community, the Indian community, claimed that, well, he actually didn't rape them and didn't torture them, that that they were trying to escape from their husband. Hart's mother told reporters, quote, my boy didn't do it. And Sheriff Weaver wants to frame him because he don't like Indians. Mm. The idea that Hart was being targeted because he was an Indian struck a chord with many in the area, which had a large American Indian population. When Hart was charged in the killings, his friends and relatives believing he was innocent closed ranks around him. According to someone cry for the children, Hart had 250 relatives living within a half-mile square area, and they were more than willing to help him. Other sympathizers agreed that Sheriff Weaver had a personal grudge against Hart, but they thought it was because Hart had escaped twice from his jail. Those escapes, former journalist Mike Wheat believes, had helped create an aura of mystery about Hart. Quote, he had become this folklorish kind of character, a local legend, mm-hmm. said Wheat. Hart seemed to be able to appear and disappear at will, Wheat said. Well, and I'm sure, look, I'm sure in that area and in that time, there's plenty of crimes that were not committed by an Indian, that an Indian person did the time for that crime. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there was some kind of racial bias there. Um but this guy, because of being able to escape from prison, he seemed to become a legend. People seem to actually believe that Hart was capable of shape-shifting, according to legend, an ability that some Cherokees may have. Mm-hmm. I have that ability. This, some believed, is how he escaped prison twice and continued to elude capture. Mm-hmm. 
Hart was also a local football star. He had excelled in high school and was considered to be of NFL caliber. Somehow he took on the reputation of a hero, which did not help investigators trying to get people to turn him in. So through the summer of 1977, agents used tracking dogs, ground searchers, and aerial heat-seeking equipment to hunt for Hart. It's like they were chasing a ghost. Or like Bigfoot. One of the agents, Harvey Pratt, a Cheyenne Arapaho, was a firm believer in American Indian mysticism. Mm -hmm. Someone cry for the children quotes Pratt as saying, quote, the Indians in this part of Oklahoma believe that medicine men have medicine so strong that they can change themselves into birds or animals or give someone else this power. Referring to the shape-shifting or or skinwalkers, as they may be called. Right, so when Hart was in prison, you know, being a piece of shit for the, being in jail for the the, the, the rapes, mm-hmm. he turned, he shape-shifted into diarrhea, and he slid right through those bars. Well, all of this just simply added to the mystique about Hart, mm-hmm. and there were rumors that he was under the protection of tribal medicine men. This explained not only his elusiveness, many believed, but other strange happenings in and around the manhunt, like the deaths of two of the law enforcement tracking dogs. They were said to have been cursed by someone. Mm-hmm. Authorities or became, they put out poison for the dogs. Well, the authorities became desperate, and on its front page, August 3rd, 1977, the Tulsa World addressed an open letter to Hart urging him to surrender. The letter included the governor's personal guarantee ensuring Hart's security and a fair trial, but this did not work. So let's talk about what led law enforcement to Hart. You've already brought up his previous convictions. Mm -hmm. So we have Sheriff Weaver and we also have Agent Linville. They stated that within hours of the murders at Camp Scott, authorities were making a list of people they thought could have done this, people whose M.O. was similar. Gene Hart's name was on this list. His MO in his previous crime had some similarities, particularly the cord and tape method of binding multiple young victims. Locals were likely right that Weaver did have a grudge against Hart. He had been able to elude authorities since his second escape from Weaver's jail in 1973. There are local rumors also that Weaver had personal reasons to hate Hart, something about a woman, I've, I've gone through all those rumors. They all go back to some kind of relationship with, with a woman. I'm unclear of the details of such. Was it a woman Bigfoot? <laughs> uh, what we do know is that mm-hmm. authorities investigating the murders checked with mental hospitals and prisons in the area for a list of outpatients and parolees with histories of sex offenses. Mm-hmm. On that list would have appeared Gene Leroy Hart's name as he had escaped. The convicted rapist and fugitive whose mother lived less than half a mile from Camp Scott at the time of the murders. Mm -hmm. Of course, investigators checked out other potential suspects in those early days. They spoke with one guy who was living in his car in the area, but for whatever reason, they dismissed him. They spoke with and I don't know if this is his real name, but this is the name given. Mm-hmm. Okay. With a, a man named Mike, a camper seen in the area who was caught stealing a hatchet and supplies from the boy scout camp the week before the murders. 
a Native American hitchhiker was arrested as well and was released after questioning. So they did look at some other individuals. Now, three days after the murders, two squirrel hunters found a flour sack with some fresh human excrement with wadded up newspaper in front of a cave three miles southwest of Camp Scott. Mm -hmm. There were lots of footprints going in and out of the cave. One of the hunters got the eerie feeling that they were being watched at this time. So rather than enter the cave, the hunters contacted the highway patrol inside the cave and near the ruins of a cellar and foundation nearby. Investigators found two tattered photographs of women, a roll of masking tape and a piece of plastic garbage bag stuck to it. Two pieces of newspaper, one pair of broken sunglasses and a beige vinyl case, a pair of gloves, a broken slingshot, and some women's underwear. The newspaper was the April 17th edition of Tulsa World, the same edition in section as the one inside the flashlight at the murder scene. Susan Emery, the Kiowa counselor, identified the sunglasses and the case as hers. The cave was located 100 feet from the ruined cellar and foundation of Jean Hart's childhood home. Tracking dogs from Camp Scott had also alerted to an area near a second cave. This is two miles from Camp Scott and overlooking the home of Hart's mother, where a farmer had reported seeing someone who looked like Hart a week after the murders. Now, did we, did I hear this correctly? That there was, there was some dookie and by the newspaper in, in a flower bag, I believe. Mm -hmm. Did they test this dookie? (laughs) I'm being serious for, well, wouldn't they be able to tell you what kind of dookie it is? Is it human dookie? Is it is it dog dookie? Um, well, the reports are that it was human. Okay, but now could they link this to heart? I could they say that it was this piece of shit's piece of shit? I don't know. Look, I went to school for computer, so I don't know how they would link that to heart. Yeah, but in all that reading that you've been doing, wouldn't you be able to? find out through all that reading if you could link shit to shit well i'm questioning what test would be available to do so in 1977 the old shit test well maybe back in 1977 they didn't have tests but poop is rich with dna so they should be able to test that to see if at least that matches heart and then we'd know that heart was used in that cave Well, it was at this cave that investigators found a boot print that matched the boot print in tent number eight and a hair attached to a bandage that was found to have the same microscopic characteristics as hearts. And a third cave was found one mile from the camp. This is on Jack Schroff's property. Cops were led to this cave by a young jail inmate, Darren Creekmore, who told authorities he met with Hart at this cave after the murders. In this cave, written on the wall, were the words, the killer was here, bye-bye fools, 77-6-17. Investigators arranged to have the photos found near the first cave to be published in the local papers, seeking information on the subjects, and locals quickly identified them as two women who had attended a wedding in 1969. Investigators traced the photographs to Louis Lindsay, who had worked at a prison. Lindsay moonlighted as a photographer and developed his pictures in the prison's darkroom. He shot the 1969 wedding of 
prison workers' daughters and used a man named Jean Leroy Hart as his assistant in the prison darkroom processing these photos. Mm -hmm. Hart could easily have printed extra copies and kept two for himself without anyone knowing. The evidence against Hart is starting to pile up. So who is Jean Hart? Hart was a Cherokee Indian born November 27, 1943 in Claremore, Oklahoma. He was raised by his mother and barely knew his father. He was a C average student in school, but excelled in sports and was considered a local football hero. He married young and his wife soon had a child. They later divorced and she refused to let him see his offspring. In 1966, Hart was working for a Tulsa steel company. That is when he raped the two women. The victims, Joan and Barbara, were both 19, married and pregnant. They were best friends since junior high school. As they were leaving a Tulsa club one night, a large Indian man, according to an account of the crime and someone cry for the children, pushed his way inside their car, brandishing a revolver. He locked one of the girls in the trunk, which he had lined with newspaper while he raped the other in the back seat, making strange animal like grunting or moaning sounds. The girl in the trunk had to listen to the whole thing. Hart then drove some distance and duct taped the girl's noses, mouths, and eyes and led them into the woods where he raped and sodomized each of them while the other listened, petrified. He left them hogtied in the fetal position just like Michelle Gousset with nooses around their necks that tightened if they tried to free themselves, so clearly intending for them to die. Despite choking nearly to death, one of the women managed to free herself and then her friend. They stumbled to the highway and waved down a car. One of the women saw the rapist's license plate number, and both women identified this person as Jean Leroy Hart. The evidence against him, combined with the identification of both victims, led Jean Hart to plead guilty to two charges of kidnapping and one charge of first-degree rape. He was sentenced to a very light three 10-year terms served concurrently, and he was paroled after serving just 28 months. This was in March of 1969. One of the rape victims told police Hart tried on her glasses. He wore them while he was driving, and he kept them. Hart was soon arrested again in June 1969 after attempting to burgle the home of a female police officer who awoke to find him entering her apartment. Cops pinned three other burglaries on him as well. Hart refused to take a plea deal, and in 1970, he got a stiff sentence of 305 years in prison. So it's nice to find out that the burglaries, not the rapes of two pregnant women, were what got him this, basically, this life sentence. He escaped from the county jail in May of 1972, jumping off the roof. He was recaptured 11 days later and was assigned to the state penitentiary. In April 1973... Hart was transferred back to the county jail. In September 1973, he escaped again, hacksawing his way out with a saw supplied by a friend. Accompanied by two inmates, Hart was still at large when the Girl Scout murders occurred four years later. Investigators spent long nights in the woods as they continued surveillance on places they thought Hart might be hiding. Finally, they got a break. By late September 1977, reward money gathered from various sources had grown to more than $20,000, and that was enough for one informant to offer police help in finding Hart. 
This from the Tulsa World newspaper. Quote, the informant told authorities that Hart's brother-in-law was plotting to drive Hart to the Cherokee Reservation in North Carolina. So the OSBI put a tracking device on the brother-in-law's car. The agent's plan was thwarted when Hart's supporter, who worked at the police headquarters, snitched and told Hart's family about the bug. But eventually the OSBI informant learned Hart was staying with an old man in a tar paper shack in the Cookson Hills. On April 6, 1978, OSBI agents closed in and took Hart by surprise without a single shot being fired. The manhunt lasted 10 months, consumed more than 10,000 man hours, and cost the taxpayers $2 million. It's worth noting that when Hart was captured, he was wearing shorts, a tank top, and women's glasses. Once Hart was captured and trial loomed, Indian activists spoke up for Hart. His supporters sponsored benefits to raise money for his defense. Their vehicle sported bumper stickers that read, quote, the heart of Gene country. The American Indian movement sent representatives to Oklahoma to monitor the situation and the Cherokee Nation Tribal Council voted to donate $12,500 for Hart's defense. Supporters wore t-shirts with slogans like, Stop the Mays County Railroad. Right, right, because this guy is completely innocent of everything. Yes, hinting that Hart was being railroaded and set up for an unfair trial. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. 
IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, cheers, mates. Cheers, Captain. All right, let's dive into the evidence that they have against Hart. Well, there was an overwhelming amount of circumstantial evidence linking Hart to the murders. Mm -hmm. So let's review this first. What links him to the deaths of Michelle, Lori, and Denise? 
Hart was an escaped rapist whose MO seemed similar. He targeted multiple young, vulnerable victims at once. He came prepared to the scene with materials to bind and gag his victims. Mm-hmm. And he used both rope and duct tape to do so, hog tying them with a with strangulation forms. Mm-hmm. He also had the ability to rape multiple times in quick succession. The evidence found in the caves was linked to Hart. The photos from the prison wedding, he developed a roll of duct tape that matched tape found at the scene of the murders, a roll of masking tape with a piece of plastic attached to it that had the end of the tape torn exactly matching the tape used to cover the lens of the flashlight. Right. The plastic also matched. Hart's co-escapee, Larry Dry, testified at trial that he and Hart had used the cave while living on the lamb, and we know it was right next to Hart's childhood home. And then the newspaper found in the flashlight the writing on the wall taunting the police, the sunglasses belonging to Susan Emery, mm-hmm. the nine women glasses. Yeah. Yes, the nine volt flashlight that had been modified to emit only a thin beam of light. We also have an associate of Hart's that testified at trial that Hart had been known to modify flashlights in this manner in his burglaries. Mm. For, furthermore, the newspaper at the cave was the same edition and section as found inside the flashlight. Hart was described by an associate as, quote, night blind, and he notoriously stole glasses wherever he went. Larry Dry testified that Hart stole glasses from homes he burglarized. The killer that night stole and discarded several pairs of glasses from Camp Scott and kept at least two pair that we know of. Two pieces of evidence found at the shack owned by Sam Pigeon, where Hart was apprehended, were found to have been stolen from counselor and training Karen Mitchell at Camp Scott. This was a souvenir corncob pipe and a small blue hand mirror. Or was he building a snowman? <laughs> well... With all the stuff you were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. I think he was building a shit man. <laughs> but these items, the tricky thing about these items, Captain, mm-hmm. they were found only upon a second search of the shack. Right. And some lead, this leads some people to believe that these were planted pieces of evidence. And that's what his defense attorneys at trial would point out. Mm-hmm. You know, that these, they actually straight up said these were planted desperately uh, by the sheriff to frame Hart. Mm-hmm. Testimony at the preliminary hearing and or trial by people who knew Hart tended to implicate him in the murders. Larry Dry testified to Hart's penchant for young girls. And Jimmy Don Bunch testified that he was in prison with Hart after the murders. And Hart told him that he was stoned and was drinking wine for three days when he woke up in the cave all bloodied. And he was not sure whether he had killed those girls or not. All right. So this jailhouse informant slash jailhouse snitch is telling us that Hart got boozed up, mm-hmm. which it happens for days. It happens. It's been known to happen. It's called binge worthy. So he gets all boozed up. He wakes up in this cave. He's covered in blood. Mm-hmm. Doesn't know what he did. Mm-hmm. But again, this is kind of, you know, I don't like these, um, to me, this is not evidence. This, to me, this is less than hearsay. Right. And because it's a jailhouse snitch. Larry Dry testified that he and Hart broke into Camp Scott more than once when it was empty to steal food. So 
as we all suspected, Hart was clearly familiar with the camp. So let's talk about physical evidence, shall we, Captain? We shall. Well, first off, we have speculated about some different weapons and some things found, but technically, as far as this case goes and as far as what is on record, there is no weapon, no murder weapon that was found. And we also have no fingerprints were found that they could link to Hart. There was a single hair on Denise Milner's body that forensic experts who analyzed it and testified stated it, quote, microscopically was similar to that of Hart. Right, similar but not 100% positive it was Hart's. Correct. And we've learned things within the past 15 years that will suggest that it's very difficult to say this is a 100% match when you're comparing you know, hairs found at a scene and right. hairs found at, a, at another location. And the other thing, too, regarding the sexual assaults on the victims, the mm. evidence left behind was complicated. Here's how it was explained by AY Magazine. Quote, seminal fluid obtained from the victim's bodies presented a conundrum. Sperm was present. Yeah, but Hart had a vasectomy earlier, so they claimed that he couldn't actually produce sperm. Correct. The prosecution argued that Hart's vasectomy was only partially successful. Mm -hmm. Consulting physicians said such cases could result in non-productive deformed sperm. Hart had type O blood, as does 45% of the population. Mm -hmm. He was a secretor, like 80% of the population. The semen sample from the victims was from a non-white male who was a secretor with blood type O and it contained deformed sperm. Mm -hmm. The number of people in the United States who met all of that criteria represented 0.002% of the population. The OSBI's website states the deformed sperm seemed to match a sample from Gene Hart. It's also worth noting though, that the Oklahoma state pathologist who performed the autopsies, Dr. Neil Hoffman, Mm-hmm. claimed not to have found sperm. However, the OSBI conducted its own investigations and they claimed sperm was present and it was the same from each of the victims. Mm-hmm. So simply meaning if the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation is correct in their stated findings, there was only one rapist who left deposits and their analysis of physical evidence, including sperm samples and other bodily fluids, revealed that only 0.002% of the population met the unique characteristics contained in that evidence. This is obviously a very, very small percentage of population, but it does include Gene Hart. Right, 0.002. That's very, very small percent. What about the evidence that tended to show that it wasn't Hart? Mm-hmm. We have the boot print, which appeared to some people to be smaller than a size 11 and a half, the size Hart's lawyer maintained that he wore. Yeah, there's a bunch of conflicting stories about this. I've heard as small as nine and a half shoe size. The second shoe print was smaller. It was the sneaker print. And this was believed to be around size seven. This obviously also does not fit Hart's size of 11 and a half. Mm-hmm. The flashlight contained one fingerprint and that was not hearts, but, but again, the flashlight we believe was stolen from the farm. No, 
we have the farm owner who says he could not identify the flashlight. That doesn't mean that it didn't come from his rather large property. Right. However, I think that one thing we can think about here is we know that Hart was known to burglarize many properties. Right. So it could have been stolen from From anywhere. Anywhere. And that fingerprint doesn't mean that that has to match the killer. Right. Or it could match the killer. That's the... That's the problem with this flashlight here. Mm-hmm. So the other thing too, though, is why weren't Hart's fingerprints found on anything? They weren't found on anything in the caves. They weren't found on the flashlight. They weren't found on the duct tape. If investigators found fingerprints of Hart's at the murder scene, or maybe even in the caves, mm-hmm. their case would have been a lot stronger. So some more information came to light in the course of the two trials in this case. One was a civil trial and one was criminal. A month or two after the murders, a camp counselor named Michelle Hoffman contacted Barbara Day and told her a disturbing story. This occurred in April of 1977. The counselors had returned to their tent to find it ransacked Mm -hmm. with their things scattered and some money missing. A box of donuts had been emptied and a note left inside the box. A counselor read the note, remarked how creepy it was and threw it away. So now she told Barbara day that the note said something along the lines of four girls will be killed or we are on a mission to kill three girls. Mm -hmm. So we don't know or don't have any evidence at all about this note because remember it was thrown away. They didn't report it to the higher ups at the time later stating that they believed that it was just a prank, so they dismissed it. Only after the murders did Michelle tell Barbara about it. But because of its seeming foreshadowing, this note has taken on almost mythical proportions. Well, they should have reported it, because, I mean, frankly, it's bad enough that you leave that creepy note. But once you steal donuts, you cross the line. Well, the thing, too, though, that we got to keep in mind... No one can really even prove that this note ever existed. And if it did, no one can recall the exact wording on the note or even the number of girls that it threatened. Right. But my point is, is if you can prove that there was donuts and you can prove that there's some missing, you can prove that there's a monster out there. I think given this situation, I think it would be incredibly unlikely that the killer would have left a warning note, you know, months in advance before killing these girls. Mm, uh, my only thing would be if you look at somebody like Hart that has done heinous crimes before, maybe he has a wrestling, you know, wrestles with not wanting to commit the crime. Mm-hmm. And by maybe somehow when he went to uh, steal something that he decided to leave a note to maybe stop himself. If he's hiding in the area and has been for quite some time and he's on the run from the police. I feel like it would be I feel like it would be kind of a big hey here here's somebody you should be looking for let's look around this area for what's going so on. So do you think the note is just a bullshit story and maybe it's just to add to the urban legend of the whole thing? I don't want to call any of these people out because I I firmly believe that anybody at the camp that day that night is probably traumatized in some form from this whole horrible horrific scene and tragedy. Of course. I mean, I mean, but take, take example of your counselor and you see some kind of glowing light, a flashlight in the distance, in the woods. 
and you're tra- and you're tracking it, and then it disappears. At some point, you're going to go, I wish I would have checked that out further. But also, maybe if you're the one that checks that out further, you become a victim. Mm-hmm. So there'd be a lot of scenarios that are probably playing through these camp counselors' minds, the parents' minds, the other the campers' minds of what could have happened, what should have happened, and maybe what they could have done to stop it. Well, as you can see already in this case, to really tear through it, you have to have a lot of different boxes, a lot of different compartments to put all of this information. And the whole story about this note being left threatening the lives of some girls, I'm going to kind of put that in the box, the same box as Gene Hart was a shapeshifter box. Right, Bigfoot. The murder trial began on March 25th, 1977, after a month-long preliminary hearing, the longest in state history. The trial was held on the third-floor courtroom of the Mays County Courthouse in Pryor, with Judge William J. Ressler presiding. Special Prosecutor Buddy Follis Jr. and Chief Prosecutor Ron Schaefer were appointed to assist District Attorney Sid Wise, who later had to withdraw because of his alleged intention to profit from a book about the case. Mm. Apparently he agreed to furnish a journalist with confidential information in return for part of the profits. The prosecution requested and was denied a change of venue. They were arguing that it was too much. There was too many people in the public that were in favor of Hart that didn't yeah. believe that he was guilty Too many supporters. Garvin Isaacs, a former public defender from Oklahoma City, was hired to defend Hart. This was after the unexplained departure of Hart's first attorney, Larry Oliver. Well, it baffles me. You know, I know you're on a roll right now, but it still baffles me that Hart played pled guilty to the charges that he was faced with before these three murders. Mm-hmm. He pled guilty to raping and, and the murders of those women, right? Mm-hmm. And and it still seems like the community around him is like, yeah, he was lying about that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's almost like they dismissed that that ever happened. Well, and here's the thing, too. You have to wonder, had he not pled guilty, what evidence they could have shown at that trial? Because there right. would have been a trial. Mm-hmm. What evidence they could have shown at that trial may have changed the whole public's perception of this guy. Mm, yeah, but because because he pled guilty, he avoided a trial. Now right. we talked about his first attorney in this trial, who he had this unexplained departure uh, from the trial. Larry Oliver. Mm-hmm. Years later, Oliver went on to say that he felt Hart could have done it, and that's why he didn't represent him. He said that he felt that Hart had a quote dark side. Mm-hmm. Jury selection questioned one hundred and ten jurors that eventually led to six men and six women that were impaneled. Not a single jury member was native American, but Hart had the unwavering support of many in the community. In a sad note, one of the victim's parents remarked that when they entered the courtroom, they felt that they were seen as the enemy media from all over the country flocked to the courthouse to attend the trial. And the atmosphere was described as a circus with spectators lining up hours in advance to get seats, Native American activists attending and community supporters voicing their opinions throughout. The trial was sensational, 
punctuated from start to finish with outbursts. Both attorneys were frequently I object. Yeah. Both attorneys were frequently called to the bench for reprimands mm-hmm. as tempers flared and verbal jabs were traded. At one point, Schaefer, the prosecutor, even challenged Isaacs to go outside. Mm, for to arm wrestle. During closing arguments by the defense, the audience would often applaud or holler. The judge was forced to clear the courtroom more than once during the trial. Mm. We won't go into the whole trial here as we've already discussed evidence against Hart. But the state called 32 witnesses. And what we didn't mention fully is Larry Dry, the convict and former co-escapee of Hart's, testified that he and Hart hid out in the caves where evidence linked to the murders was found. Right. He also said he received three threatening letters from an unknown person who he assumed to be Hart, saying that if Dry told anyone where Hart might be hiding out, his wife and daughter were in danger. Counselor Celia Stahl testified that two Girl Scouts were scared when, quote, two mysterious men were near their tent sometime around the time of the murders. And Richard Day testified that he saw a tall stranger near the creek the day before the murders. Hart maintained his innocence throughout the trial. He stated in one press conference he gave before the trial that at the time of the murders, he was in Tulsa at his uncle's house. The uncle conveniently died during the manhunt and couldn't testify at the trial. Nevertheless, even without an alibi, the defense went on the attack and effectively undermined much of the prosecution's case. Its witnesses testified that the hair and sperm evidence was not conclusive. It claimed evidence was planted, the mirror and the pipe, the photographs found near the cave, which had supposedly been seen in Sheriff Weaver's possession before they were found. It claimed a homosexual female counselor could have killed the girls. It even presented an alternative theory that another man had committed these murders. And although a witness who testified implicating this other man was eventually charged with perjury, the damage seemed to have been done. The defense rested without Hart taking the stand. Ten days after opening arguments, the jury began their deliberations. They retired for the night without a verdict and was ready within 30 minutes of convening the next morning. Wow. March 29th, 1979, they were ready with their decision. A unanimous verdict of not guilty was their decision. The courtroom erupted with cheers. Jury remarks about their findings included, quote, a reasonable doubt Mm. and evidence wasn't there. And the investigation was a screwed up mess. Although some jurors indicated that they didn't necessarily believe Hart was totally innocent. One juror told the Tulsa world that all 12 had agreed after only five minutes of deliberation that Hart should be found not guilty. It wasn't any one thing they stated. There were too many loose ends. Too many things didn't add up. In an Associated Press interview a year later, they quoted in the Tulsa world, juror Lila Ramsey said, none of us knew whether he did it or did not do it. We were shocked that they didn't have more evidence than what they had. Or maybe, as Buddy Fallis suggested post-trial, it was the fact that Hart was headed back to prison anyway to serve a 300-year sentence, 
which wasn't admissible, but which the defense let slip in front of the jury. Oh, what a party foul. So the jury knew it could acquit and Hart, if in fact he had done it, he still wasn't going free. So it arguably didn't matter what the jury said. Prosecutors cried, shocked, and left in disbelief at the verdict. They felt they had their man. Right. And they thought that they proved his guilt. 20 years later, when the OJ verdict came down, two of the murder victims' mothers said of Hart's trial and that of OJ Simpson's trial, you would be absolutely shocked at how many similarities there were in those two cases. Sherry Farmer told an interviewer the alleged planting of evidence, the race card, all of that was played. Betty Milner said watching the O.J. Simpson trial was like it was happening to us all over again. Simpson's attorney, as we all know, the late Johnny Cochran, he talked about a bloody glove when he said, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Mm -hmm. Garvin Isaacs foreshadowed this 20 years earlier, referencing the bloody boot print that was allegedly not Hart's size, saying, quote, you can't shrink your foot. Right. According to reports, the Hart jury was not allowed to hear evidence regarding Hart's previous rapes. Prosecutors and law enforcement who carefully pulled together the case against Hart weren't able to recover from what they called a gross miscarriage of justice. Yeah, but the the difference in this case is, look, OJ, when he was found not guilty, he walked free. Mm -hmm. In this case, when Hart was found not guilty, he was going to spend... over 300 years in prison. Right. So there's there's a big difference there. And you can't tell me that the defense didn't let that slip on purpose. You know, the the jury was not supposed to know that because remember they prosecution was not allowed to present his previous crimes of these rapes that he had committed. Well, and think of it this way though. The jury took 30 minutes, right? 30 minutes the the second day. Right, but my my point is by that second day somebody could have said, "Hey, look, Go home and sleep on it tonight, but it doesn't matter if he's found innocent or guilty. He's going away uh, to prison for over 300 years. If you think in those terms, then then it, what does it matter if you rule him guilty or not? Right, and I, I think that's the big argument that's presented here because you have this, this simple fact, okay? I'm asked as a juror to determine beyond reasonable doubt, Mm -hmm. you know, that this guy killed these three girls. Mm -hmm. Well, they didn't really prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. I I think it was a bit stacked against them that they didn't have the technology at the time, possibly. Right. We'll get into some other alternative theories here later, but this simple situation of, well, I have this little part of me that says he, he might not have done this. Okay, well, if we say that he's innocent, right, right, if we say he's guilty, okay, he's he's going to serve life sentences, right? Mm. He's already facing a life sentence. If we say he's guilty and he actually didn't do it, then the real killer or killers are getting away with murder. Right. They will never be apprehended likely for this case. But if we say he's innocent, we got nothing to lose other than we can't try him again. Right. He's already going away. In the 18 months following the verdict, 22 OSBI agents quit. They quit their job. Ted Lemke, OSBI in- inspector, he unprofessionally, let's say, 
commented publicly that there would be no further investigation and they might as well close the case because the jury, quote, turned loose the man who committed the murders. Interestingly, after the trial, the parents were returned the items of clothing from their dead children, what they were wearing that fateful night. This a clear indication that the investigation was effectively over. Right. So the devastated parents looked for other ways to obtain justice for their daughters. In 1985, the farmers and milliners filed civil lawsuits against the Magic Council, claiming its negligence was partly responsible for the deaths of their daughters and seeking a $5 million judgment. At the civil trial, testimony from former campers and counselors included tales of thefts, break-ins, and strange happenings in the years, and even weeks and days preceding the murders. A story came out that in 1976, three moms visiting the camp were asleep when a man looked into their tent. The story about the warning note in the donut box was addressed. Testimony was heard that on the night of the murders, screams were heard in the night, tents were opened by strange men or a strange man, and there were multiple sightings of a strange man or strange men in the woods, and girls were grabbed. But in the end, the jury ruled in favor of the council. So once again, the parents were left with no closure. For all of our old episodes, download the Stitcher app, and it's free. Mm-hmm. And check out our bonus show on Stitcher Premium. It's $5 a month. And you get every show that's on Stitcher Premium for just that $5 a month. So it's not like these other shows that will just do like a Patreon or you pay them 5 bucks a month. This is you pay 5 bucks a month to Stitcher and you get all the shows that are on Stitcher Premium. A huge catalog plus our great show off the record. Thanks to everybody for joining us in the garage here today. We will be back for part three tomorrow. And until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Collider says BritBox has TV everyone should be watching. Stream acclaimed series with powerful performances from Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, Bella Ramsey, and Matthew McFadden. Discover new BritBox original series you won't find anywhere else. Like Three Little Birds, Agatha Christie's Murder is Easy, and a new chapter of BAFTA-winning drama, Time. Stream what the New York Times calls the best of British telly, only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com.